second session on the theology of the body. And as I was saying last time, I'm not aiming here in one sense to be uh, a world-class scholar. We have a world-class scholar on the theology of the body here, uh, and it's not me. Um, I'm aiming to give you, within a course on sexual morality, um, a summary of one of, I'd say, two theological movements within the church in the last half century that have changed sexual morality. One of those is the revival of a virtue ethic within Thomistic theory um, that just means we're not focused entirely on law, obligation, duty in terms of question of sex. The other is the theology of the body from John Paul II. Uh, and those, in a sense, are remedying in two different ways a deficiency before the council. That before the council, we had a presentation of the moral life that was orthodox, that was faithful, um, that got the core things in terms of the duties being very clearly known to the preconciliar generation. Frequently, though, when you hear the boomer generation complain, you can pick up pretty easy. There was nothing attractive in how those truths were being presented to them. So what has John Paul II changed? I would say that the biggest thing is somehow it's a presentation where it looks attractive. It looks desirable. It looks, I want to live that life. Um, not necessarily it's easy to live that life. Um, but that life looks desirable. And that also doesn't mean someone's going to choose to live it, but that it does look desirable. So last lecture, what did we cover? We covered really theology of the body in general. And I broke down, I said it's following Shu's schema, um, the three eras, original man, historical man, eschatological man. Um, noted this phrase, original man, on one level being because John Paul II is articulating all this in the context of his genesis, genesis exegesis, original in terms of Adam and Eve, original, uh, original solitude, Adam alone, but also original in that other sense of every human being has this experience. Every human being at some level can tap into this sense of I feel alone and a yearning for another. Um, when with another, I have a sense of a unity that I'm find fulfillment in and so forth. Um, noted that as Percy summarizes the four qualities of the body, that it is symbolic. We're going to talk a bit more about that explicitly today. Uh, nuptial, free but fallen. Uh, this that we are redeemed, so even when we're remembering that we are in our historical state characterized by, by sin, by lust, that we exist in a state of grace, that it's possible to be redeemed, um, to be transformed by grace, to live differently. And the eschatological, that where is this all heading, that the deep meaning of this is indicated even in a sense clearly by where we're ultimately having that there's a nuptial meaning 
in my body and nuptial meaning in human existence, that we are made to partake of this wedding, um, the marriage feast of the Lamb, that the church is to be married to him, um, but that each of us, I see in my body a meaning that is partaking of that, that the primary reality is the union of Christ and his church. I'm partaking in that uh, in my own existence. Okay, so all that's just brief recap from last time. Gonna rub this out now, so. So what we're gonna look at today is specifically how this all relates to sex and contraception. And I'm gonna make a contrast um, with the issues before the council and in a sense the theology of the body's remedying. So we're gonna note pre-VAT two, there is or was this allegation, I wish I could learn to spell, physicalism. We'll know what that means, but the allegation, um, so Charles Kern, I think is the one who coined this as a particular phrase, that the biological processes were identified with a moral law. So you can't interfere with the body. You can't interfere with biology. Uh, and he said, well, we're not just animals, so why, that just doesn't make sense. Um, At the council, there was a call for the human person and his acts to be the standard, to be the criteria by which everything would be evaluated. So there were certain of the revisionist theologians after the council that said, ah, oh, yes, now we've got a rejection of the, the physicalism and the focusing on the biology and the body. Um, then when Humana Vitae came out, the language that used was of the unitive and procreative meanings and some scholars try to say well here again we see the church not using the biological language of some of the preconciliar writers but as we will briefly note today uh, and we'll note in more detail later in the course, two paragraphs of Humana Vitae do very explicitly refer to the natural functions 
of the body. So how do you know what you are about? How do you know what your actions are about? The natural functions of the human body indicate that. And then in the context of what we're looking at today, the theology of the body, I'm going to note two things. So the very fact it's talking about the body is kind of an addressing of the whole issue of physicalism. And the focus on love relates to the whole question of the person as calls for as the standard in um, Gaudium et Spes. So in brief, what I'm going to be arguing is that the theology of the body gives us a remedy for even what the liberals are complaining was the problem before the council, assuming they were right, which actually I don't think necessarily holds at all. Certainly we get a much more beautiful packaging of it in the theology of the body. And in outline, what does the theology of the body indicate? Um, okay, I'm going to have to, that pen is now dying. Um, the couple speak through their bodies. And what do they speak of their bodies? Well, they speak of self-gift, a self-gift that is um, total and mutual. They speak also of potential fruitfulness. body has this nuptial meaning and although the two meanings that we noted there in Humana Vitae are referred to together, they are realized with a Z, sorry a Z, <laughs> together. Um, John Paul II has this particular angle that the union is realized through the procreative meaning. Which takes us back to the some of the things we're looking at when we look to the hierarchy of ends in marriage. And we'll note that where he says that contraception 
falsifies love and degrades it. In contrast, natural family planning gives self-mastery, reciprocal respect, dialogue between the couple and a shared responsibility. that in a nutshell is what I'm going to be aiming to cover in the next 55 minutes. What do you, what word are you looking for? It's more the, the lights. Okay. That I can. So conscious down here. Self-mastery, reciprocal respect, dialogue, and shared responsibility. Okay, let's turn to page seven of my bundle of lecture notes. So now I'm going to run through all this more slowly. And although we're talking about contraception as one of the things here, um, in this context, we're in a sense only looking at the vision contrasting contraception and natural family planning, a detail of argument about why contraception is problematic, is sinful, we'll look at later. So don't get too frustrated if it seems like, well, we've not really answered that question. We are going to pause and look at it later. So page seven, the theology of the body, the marital act and contraception. Uh, and here I'm contrasting Charles Curran, uh, Janet Smith and John Paul II. So at the top there I ask, what is the nature of the marital act? And how did John Paul II renew theology's understanding of it? Uh, and I note that moral theology's analysis depends on knowing the nature of any particular act that we're considering. You can't consider it unless you know what it is. So preconcilia, we had the so-called progressives um, complain about what, as Charles Curran puts it, was physicalism. And there, with a couple of different quotes from him, I summarize, i.e., descriptions of the sexual act that allegedly identify the demands of the natural law with physical and biological processes such that the individual may not interfere with the animal processes 
and carnalities of the body. I say, i.e., condoms are wrong because they stop semen reaching its physical goal. So the whole argument is structured around the physical. And I note this is a progressive stereotype of traditional Thomistic analyses. I have read some manualist presentations that come close to this, but I really don't think this is Charles Curran faithfully articulating the position he's attacking. But it is one of these thoughts out there of what was wrong before the council. And do you think it is probably fair to say that there was something close enough to that as the basis before the council that was accurate, but you might hear that in a teaching and think, well, but is that relevant to my marriage? Is that really what's going on, so to speak? Okay, Vatican II, what changed at the council? Well, in our context uh, for moral theology and sexual morality, so there's a call for renewal at Gaudium et Spes in particular that called for objective standards based on the dignity of the human person and his acts in its reference to understanding conjugal love and responsible parenthood. I note next, Humana Vitae, 1968, um, that Paul VI, I say, partially bypassed traditional terminology and spoke simply of the need for the unitive and procreative meanings that are inherent and separable in the marital act to be acknowledged as just that, inseparable, inherent. Um, and is of the nature of an encyclical, it teaches, it doesn't argue. An encyclical is not a work of apologetics. An encyclical does not aim to convince you. It aims to teach you what is the teaching. It's the job of theologians, it's the job of apologists to say why that teaching is desirable, is appealing, is good for your life and so forth. So with those points of references, what does the theology of the body do, achieve? Well, I say it restores the significance of the body. Um, so the, and thus being in continuity with the tradition and defending it. Um, I say it repackages the analysis in terms of personalism and self-gift, and that makes it a significant renewal and development of the tradition. I say, thus, the theology of the body significantly enriches the understanding of the nature of the act. So I started at the top of the page, what is the nature of the marriage act? Well, it's been kind of repackaged with a new focusing, not just the act as a kind of physical detail analysis, but a broader picture that I think was implicit before the council already, um, but a broader package that, as we're going to note, has the, all these other factors within it. Particularly with respect to contraception. So a reaffirmation of the teachings of Humanae Vitae appears only in the final 15 general audience catechesis. But it was in its original plan, and here I'm quoting the scholar Michael Wallstein, the true focus of the theology of the body as a whole. 
Um, I think you were quoting Dr. Ignotic saying that there's much more to the theology of the body than just sex and marriage. Um, and, you know, as a moral theologian, there's a sense in which I don't have a dog in that fight. Is, was the theology all about sex or not? Well, in a sense for me, it doesn't matter. It was definitely a big part of it was about marriage, sex, family, contraception. Um, Waldstein is arguing that when you look at the structure, contraception was the true focus from the very beginning. So even though he takes four years to get there, and it's only the final 15 catechesis before he then concludes that are on contraception, that was the arc that it was all heading towards. That it was to be a defense of this teaching of humana vitae that John Paul II was very obviously uh, a proponent, a defender of, um, and one who recognized that this was a teaching that was gonna have huge practical impacts, pastoral impacts, if our people follow it or if they don't they're Catholic or they're not. Um, I did reread um, a couple of the catechesis that Waldstein references um, in his book at the point that I footnote there. It does seem to me John Paul II is saying himself, this was the focus from the beginning. Um, but I'm also happy to say, yes, well, obviously theology of the body taught much more than just contraception. But for us in the context of a course on sexual morality, I'm having it in here because it certainly did teach a lot about it, whether that was the thing or only a big thing. So what does it say? Page eight onwards. So the nature of the marital act in the theology of the body context. So in the marital act, what's going on? The couple speak through their bodies. I so say the act is a revelatory interpersonal language, a prophetic, to quote him, John Paul II, language about total self-giving. So what is a prophet? A prophet speaks on behalf of another the body speaks on behalf of the person. Um, before going further, let's just note what is being said here by saying that it speaks or that it's prophetic. This is a metaphor, yeah? So he's not claiming this is uh, literal, um, it's metaphorical. But a metaphor is truly saying something, even though it's a metaphor. And I think some of the critiques of John Paul II when they're saying, well, that just isn't, doesn't, well, he's using metaphor, he's using poetry, he's using imagery. Um, so you've got to understand him in that light. So what does the body speak? As I say here, the human body is made for self-gift. That's what the body says. Made in the image and likeness of God with a unique dignity, with a vocation to love, and with a vocation to self-donation that expresses that dignity. 
So all that is what is said by the body. Refocusing it, this language of the body points to the nuptial meaning of the body, that the body has an inherent marriage meaning. The capacity for reciprocal self-gift, a communion of persons, never treating the other as a mere object, that's the personalist norm, which we noted last lecture as well. So the marital act expresses total and mutual self-giving. Quoting, in the marital act, man and woman reciprocally express themselves in the fullest and most profound way, made possible by their somatic dimension in the language of the body. Only in the commitment and faithfulness of marriage is this self-giving possible. And the total self-giving in the conjugal act reflects the total divine self-giving love to humanity. Do you remember last lecture I noticed the quote that, or the, the thing that um, self-gift is the model of God in creation to humanity. Creation is a gift that the bodies to each other are modeling this thing of creation self uh, gift that the language of gift to each other of God to us um, this is all what what are the bodies saying it's all about gift particularly fertility so this is where a lot of our modern world just kind of bypasses this, might buy into a lot of the rest of this. Oh, isn't that lovely, giving yourselves to each other? Fertility. That fertility is part of self-giving. Um, quoting John Paul II, the body speaks of potential fruitfulness. And I then uh, quote a commentator on him, Cormac Burke, who is one of kind of the early popularizes before Christopher West, um, he summarizes him this way. Um, David, could you read that quote for us? I am yours. I am yours. I give you my heart. Here, take it. Remains mere poetry to which no physical gesture can give a true body. But I am yours. I give you my seed. Here, take it. Is no poetry. It is love. I give you what I give no one else. To say, I give you everything, but not my fertility, is a contradiction, is not full self-gift. So you want to pause and look and comment on this? I think this is a, a, a really beautiful, clear image, an image to use in your sermons, to use in your catechesis. I give you myself, is including giving you my fertility. Giving you my body is giving you my fertility. Um, say I'm giving you myself, but I'm not giving that is a contradiction. What do I have that I can give a woman my body, but what does it mean to give my body my fertility? 
when that's happening in the context of a self-gift that is total, that is mutual, I'm giving her something I give to no one else, which makes it all the more a gift of myself. Um, whereas to repeat, if I say I'm going to give you everything I've got, but I don't give that, then I'm not totally giving myself. I'm not totally committing myself. Um, and this isn't language I think we see in any of the preconciliar comments on this. It's, it's obviously somehow saying the same thing, but it is a new packaging. Okay, page nine. So here I've got two little sections, contrasting contraception and responsible parenthood. So contraception. Um, and here starting with the terminology of humana vitae, the unitive and procreative meanings, these two meanings of the marital act cannot licitly be separated. So yes, they can be separated. That is exactly what happens in contraception or in rape or in uh, promiscuous sex, it is possible to separate these things. But you can't morally separate them. They belong together. Um, Daniel, could you read this quote from John Paul II? In the conjugal act, it is not listen to separate artificially the unitive meaning from the appropriate meaning, because the one as well as the other belong to the innermost truth of the conjugal act. The one is realized together with the other, and in a certain way, the one through the other. When the conjugal act is deprived of its inner truth, because it is deprived artificially of its procreative capacity, it also ceases to be an act of love. Ceases to be an act of love. Deprived of its inner truth. So you can do that to the act, but it's lost something. So continuing with my bullet points there, contraception falsifies authentic conjugal love. Can you scribble out the word of there? That's a typo, I'm afraid. Contraception falsifies authentic conjugal love in that man and woman become, to quote John Paul II, arbiters and manipulators of the divine plan. They're not following the plan. They're not following a path that leads to fulfillment. They're not finding an authentic inner meaning in it. They've become arbiters of whatever they want it to be. And contraception thus degrades human sexuality and in the end degrades both partners because it alters the meaning of total self-gift. Whereas responsible parenthood, um, again quoting him, human life is always a splendid gift of God's goodness, even when it's life that is suffering or life that is unwanted, it's still a splendid gift of God's goodness. And I then quote, uh, not from Theology of the Body, but from John Paul II in Evangelium Vitae. So he reaffirms Gaudium et Spes teaching on responsible parenthood within conjugal love. Michael, could you read this quote for us? 
In its true meaning, responsible procreation requires couples to be obedient to the Lord's call and to act as faithful interpreters of his plan. This happens when the family is generously open to new lives and when the couple ma couples maintain an attitude of openness and service to life. Even if, for serious reasons and in respect for the moral law, they choose to avoid a new birth for the time being or indefinitely. The moral law obliges them in every case to control the impulse of instinct and passion and to respect the biological laws inscribed in their person. It is precisely this respect which makes legitimate, at the service of responsible procreation, the use of natural methods of regulating fertility. Okay, any comments at this stage? So trying to see the kind of big picture vision here of what the marital act is about, what it means, what contraception is doing instead, and this thing, responsible parenthood, as an alternative to contraception. No comments? And interestingly, you know, in that very line, he refers to the biological laws. So he's not, this isn't irrelevant in his system, but those laws speak of something beyond mere biology. Um, in the context of talking about virtue last week and how you, you choose an object toward which you're acting, then this context, the the object of conjugal love is is a larger object than most people would tend to look at. They wouldn't necessarily say, "I'm doing this," um, and that object includes the potential of a child. It's not always there. Um, so there's a, the, a reframing of the object to say, well, in this act, it also includes the potential of the next, you know, 20 years mm -hmm. that might come with it, or, you know, that just to, to give a, something to it. But so, so then you're, you're changing the object from just this person in front of me and pleasure or love, those kind of things, but you're adding to it something more. Um, or rather, this contraception changes the object to something more immediate and therefore changes the act itself. Right. If I rephrase it, take something away, um, or his language 
you know, falsifying, um, yeah. We will note later words like artificial is not the same as unnatural. Potential, potentially fertile, doesn't mean, um, well, it might not work. NFP is not very effective, that, therefore it's always potentially fruitful. That isn't what's meant theologically. Um, but there's always somehow a meaning of fruitfulness in it, even if you know it's not going to be fruitful. Sorry. That might kind of get what I was going to say, but how would you respond to people who see natural family planning as just natural contraception? like? It seemed like that you know the ends are the same, it's just different means. And I guess that means are important, but I could see a lot of people not seeing the distinction between the two. Right. And so we'll have a whole lecture on that very point because it's a big point. Um, so as you yourself just said, the means do matter, how we get to the end matters. Um, I would say the other thing that makes NFP different from contraception, so on one sense, on this particular day, they might have the same intention, no child today. Um, the same intention, we are not seeking fruitfulness today, biological fruitfulness. But to be natural family planning, to be responsible parenthood, the reasons to not want a child today have to be responsible, not selfish. Um, we'll unpack that more in a few weeks. Let's look over the page. Here I'm quoting him on um, natural family planning. Um, so I've got a long, large block quote at the bottom of the page there from Familiaris Consortio. Um, and above that, you can see I've pulled out in a string of bullet points some key words that I want us to note he's using, which in terms of apologetics, in terms of preaching, in terms of catechesis, if you're explaining what is this all about, how is this different from what the secular world is offering you, these are the things he's talking about. So just going through my notes there, natural family planning. I say, reiterating humanae vitae, John Paul II taught the appropriateness of natural family planning. See, note some of his terms or emphases. Reciprocal respect, dialogue, shared responsibility, self-control, dynamism, personal love, irreconcilable concepts of the human person and sexuality, its truly and fully human dimension, never used as an object, breaking the personal unity of body and soul, deepest interaction of nature and person. Uh, Tyler, could you read the first bullet point and then Christopher, the second one, which is longer. And both of these are just part of the same quotation from Familiaris Consortium. They are acting as ministers of God's plan, 
and they benefit from their sexuality, according to the original dynamism of total self-given, without manipulation or alteration. In the light of the experience of many couples and of the data provided by the different human sciences, theological reflection is able to perceive and is called to study further the difference, both anthropological and moral, between contraception and recourse to the rhythm of the cycle. It is a difference which is much wider and deeper than is usually thought, one which involves, in the final analysis, two incorruptible concepts of the human person and of human sexuality. <coughs> the choice of the natural rhythms involves accepting the cycle of the person, that is the woman, and thereby accepting dialogue, reciprocal respect, shared responsibility, and self-control. To accept the cycle and to enter into dialogue means to recognize both the spiritual and corporal character of conjugal community and to live personal love with the requirements of fidelity. In this context, the couple comes to experience how conjugal community is enriched with those values of tenderness and affection, which constitute the inner soul of human sexuality and its physical dimension also. In this way, sexuality is respected and harmonious in its truly and fully human dimension and is never used as an object that, by breaking the personal unity of soul and body, strikes at God's creation itself and the level of the deepest interaction of nature and person. Okay, that's a big block quote there. Um, just to kind of look at some of those bullet point words I've pulled out of there. Dialogue. Why does natural family planning require dialogue in a way that the woman being on the pill does not? The couple together to make the decision. Yeah. What else, even at a physical level? He has to know what day of the month she's on. Yeah. So he has to have an awareness of what's going on with her body. She has to communicate that to him. There's a whole required dialogue that goes in there that on one level is, you could say, a burden on the couple. They've got to talk to each other. Um, but you don't need to have that conversation with many couples to realize how that changes their relationship. So when you as I'm sure you all will have some experience of this over the years, talk through couples as they shift from using artificial contraception to at some moment in their, their life saying, okay, I'm going to take this whole God and Jesus and church thing seriously and change how I relate to my spouse. This dialogue thing is going to be a big thing, particularly that men will talk about. And you will hear the men say, I now relate to my wife differently because of this whole process. So that involves dialogue. It involves respect. I've got to respect this is what she is like. She similarly has to respect um, his desires are much more physical than hers in a large part of the marriage. Um, so there's all kinds of studies that show how a woman's libido drops after she's had a, first, a, a couple of children already. She's somehow kind of biologically checked that box. His desire does not drop. She needs dialogue, mutual respect to kind of know what's going on in him. In a parallel way, he has to know what's going on in her. 
shared responsibility. She takes the pill, he doesn't have to worry about anything. There's nothing shared there. There's nothing being worked at together. Whereas, share, following the cycle, he has to share with her the whole thing of spacing how they relate to each other. Um, Self-control, um, well that maybe is a bit more obvious, but again men will talk about how this is a big thing and what changes them. To grow in self-control, to grow in self-mastery. Um, because I don't get to choose what night of the month. Um, These are very different visions of what a relationship is about, what limits it, enables it, forms it. So when Don Paul II says irreconcilable concepts of the human person and sexuality, is it all about freedom and choice and what I want? Or is it partaking in a whole thing that exists and is a reality before me and my wife get there. And we are learning how to do this from a wisdom that existed before us. That is not how the modern world teaches people to think. Comments on this stage? And we all see the huge gulf between where, what he's talking about and where so many people in our society are and many people in our pews are. Um, but this is a better way of living that's being offered. And if we fail to articulate this, we fail to give people what even at a human level is a better way of existing. What's not for any of us? Pat was working fine this morning, so. Hmm. Okay, moving along. Um, we'll find out later what that is. Page 11. So here I have um, attempting to give an, in just one page, a summary of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Um, but a summary that is focused entirely on the question of sexuality and particular contraception. Here I'm mixing um, quotes from Janet Smith and John Paul II. Uh, I know Dr. Ignosik uh, doesn't think Janet Smith's a great articulator of his position. I'm basically saying in the context of contraception, I think this works. So this is the apologetic, the one page summary. So I say, John Paul II uses phenomenology and personalism to examine human experience and explain the nature of reality and of the human person. His language of the body provides a popular expression of and renewal of traditional Thomistic natural law arguments. So in just six points. Point one, the original human experience is that of solitude, 
of longing for another to complete us, and of love between the sexes being experienced as the giving of self to the other. Point two, the body is the expression of the human person. The meaning of its expression is far from arbitrary. Actions speak, they have an inherent meaning that we must respect. For example, neither a kiss nor a hug is an arbitrary action. Rather, each action has a meaning that precedes any other meaning a person might try to give it. The language of the bodies expresses our desire to give ourselves to another in bodily actions that have an inherent meaning. So it's just briefly paused there. So, you know, body language isn't the same thing as John Paul II's theology of the body, but um, at a popular level, one points to the other. So, you know, is there any culture in human history where a handshake would be an insult? No, that there's an obvious progression. So some societies are much more reserved and hug very, very rarely. But physical contact, a handshake, a hug, an embrace, a kiss, there is a progression here that is somehow inherent in our meaning. And the Italians might do that to one and everybody, but it's always a uh, gesture of love, of respect, um, whereas the Northern Europeans, you know, you hardly ever, yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, okay, point three. The unitive meaning of the marital act is by means of its procreative meaning. Procreation of child is a bond that joins the couple together in an exclusive way. And thus sex that is not open to procreation is not truly unitive. So when we talk about the ends of marriage and how seeking a child together bonds the couple, um, the unitive meaning is through the procreative meaning. That that is the deepest meaning that bonds the couple together. Um, for when the marital act is closed to procreation, it is robbed of what ultimately makes it most unitive. It robs it of the ability for two to become one flesh through the new life they would create. There's not a full gift of self to the spouse. There is no full union. And what then, what language does the body speak? Here's the key point. In contraceptive sex, the body lies because it speaks of full, full self-gift while being closed to it because it's closed to procreation. So quoting Cormac Burke's summary again, I give you everything, but not my fertility. Such a statement is self-contradictory. I then quote Janet Smith. Acts that destroy the power of human sexual intercourse to represent objectively the mutual total self-giving of spouses 
are wrong, such acts are wrong. Quoting John Paul II directly, such a violation of the inner order of conjugal communion, a communion that plunges into its roots, its roots into the very order of the person, constitutes the essential evil of the contraceptive act. Point five, contraception violates the unitive meaning of the conjugal act because it holds back something of the gift of self to your spouse. It holds back one's fertility. And so John Smith summarizes it this way, contraception is like Judas's kiss. The action means one thing, but it's used for something else. It's a very dramatic image there, Judas's kiss. Um, And so all of these things talk about mutual self-gift, mutual respect. So yeah, in both directions. Because yeah. like, I can see people saying, oh, I'm, giving them, I'm not giving them my fertility, but they don't want my fertility. But then it's also like, you're not accepting the whole person. Mm -hmm. And as you will study, or have already studied the canon law of marriage, that that would, if that was present as the intention at the very start of the marriage, it would just be an invalid marriage. Okay, let's move to some kind of analyses, criticisms, comments about the theology of the body. Um, I asked if you had time to reread these, read these two pages in advance. Have you all had time to do that? That's fine. Okay, so I'll, I'll go through this then. Um, <laughs> okay, and honesty hurts as well. <laughs> Where I ranked on the list of priorities. Yeah, okay, so... Um, I'm blending together, and you can follow in the footnotes where I've got different sources, um, different comments for and against the theology of the body, and some of them you'll see in the footnotes, commentators that are nuanced um, one way or the other. So, top of the page there, John Grabowski. So, his book, Sex and Virtue, which I said is the book, if I've got one book that I'd base this course on his book is the vision it's too short to be an entire course but so I say Grabowski notes that both fans and critics of theology of the body focus on matters of sex he argues in contrast to how I quoted Waldstein that the theology of the body's focus is the whole person of which sex is but one integral component 
Nonetheless, the theology of the body articulated a new vision of dignity, purpose, and love against tyrannical communist atheism and empty Western consumerism, a vision of friendship and love enriched by the portrayal of self-gift, of masculinity and femininity and their complementarity against a world that sees these as mere social constructs, and a transcendent anthropology, the original solitude seeks Christ against a world that sees nothing beyond. Now, I then have this section I've called Boomer Complaints, and obviously I'm using that title Boomer as a term of abuse, yes. Um, so I'm not wanting to give huge credibility to these comments, but I think it's important to note that they're out there. And what was the generation that was alive and academically receiving the theology of the body as he was articulating it, it was the boomer generation. So there was this very hostile, unreceptive body in academia, in America and elsewhere, um, and in much of the episcopate. So I say, the spirit of the Vatican II, spirit of Vatican II generation criticizes or criticized, because many of them are now gone, John Paul II's theology of the body because of its defense of those truths that they reject. So Margaret Farley, who was a big name, you may not have heard of her, um, she sees it as simply new language for excluding divorced and remarried Catholics. How you manage to make that the thing it's about, but anyway. Uh, Lisa Cowell, Sol Cahill, Cahill, not Cahal, uh, laments its rejection of contraception. Uh, Michael Lawler and Todd Solzman see it as merely a heterosexual theology. What a terrible thing. Um, um, Similarly, the theology of the body is the old wine of biologism, physicalism, and cl classicalism of the manuals of moral theology in the new wineskin of Thomistic personalism and a theology of the body. And I say some of us wouldn't see that as a bad thing. So basically, I've been articulating that actually this is, I think, kind of... I don't know how explicitly that was his narrative in his head in terms of what he was remedying from before, but actually, I think that's his great achievement. So rather than sweep away physicalism, biologism, and the classic things that were in the manuals, they've somehow got a whole new wineskin. Um, now, of course, where they say, using that image wineskin in the Gospels, new wine, new wineskin. So you basically need a whole new Bible if you're going to have a new world. Um, okay, more seriously though, I note two quotes here that I think actually are more nuanced critiques that are worth pondering. So, so here, this section I call, sex and love are rarely perfect. So Catherine Cavani says, the reality of sin, suffering in a fallen world mean that John Paul II's positive portrayal of sex is likely to disappoint real people. What if other people, bad luck or bad timing, 
mean that you never get to live this lovely picture of metaphysical and sexual harmony. Lisa Cahill similarly says, John Paul II's portrayal depends upon a very romanticized depiction of sex. And even if, uh, and even of marital love, in the most ideal of circumstances, human beings rarely, if ever, accomplish total self-gift. So comments on that as a thought, as a critique. Yeah, I think I think that's that's the the point there. Um, or or the the person you marry you starts out good and then they turn bad. Or it seems like you could then say, well, the beatific vision is is not something we're going to experience here. So why even think about it, or why even explain it to somebody? Um, yeah, like a bridge out to be, we're in a fallen world. Why bother? giving people an ideal uh, to live by or to go towards. But to the second one, you know, human beings really like to accomplish total self-gift. Um, that's also an argument against contracep contraception, I'd say, because why would you want to add another obstacle to self-gift if that's the case? Yeah, but as the sermon here put it, uh, you're not Jesus, and your spouse isn't either. Um, I mean, I think there is probably some, there is something to it. Like, we're not, it is an ideal that people probably aren't going to fully experience, but that doesn't mean you can't experience a large part of it, or at least some of it. And a large part of it, or some of it, is better than not, not striving after. I mean, it's the same thing with holiness. Like, we're never going to be perfect. Right, right. We're falling. Even if our sins keep getting smaller and smaller, they're never going to completely disappear. And with that, so there are priests out there who, and you've all heard that sermon, that, well, we're just all sinners, and it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> That's just where it ends. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's kind of what this seems to be saying. Well, love and sex and marriage, yeah, there's a lot of failure out there. Full stop. Um, it makes me think, you know, love is taking a risk in general. And so if, if you're going to not take that risk over and over again because you might get hurt, well, then you're never going to act. You're just going to turn in on yourself and that's even going to be yeah. Um, so I guess that's another theme from John Paul II is, is do not be afraid. Yeah. So on one level, um, this is an important critique when we are speaking of this to others, to I think always be aware. The reality of suffering, the reality of sin, 
the reality that what I'm describing to you is real, but don't be surprised if you don't get this perfectly in your own life, in your own relationship. But this is what gives meaning to the living of your relationship. Aiming for this and you will achieve real parts of this is what gives meaning to everything else in your living out of marriage and sexuality. Okay, we only have five minutes. Um, Christopher West, what have I said here? Um, Christopher West is obviously the most popular promoter of theology of the body. Many people critique him for um, not being faithful to John Paul II. I think in Dr. Ignotic's course, he's not even mentioned, yes. Um, he is a popularizer rather than a theologian in his own right. He has nonetheless given, I think, a huge gift to the church in his popularization, uh, youth programs across this nation and elsewhere, marriage preparation programs across this nation and elsewhere have been transformed by his promotion of the theology of the body. Um, scanning down to the bottom there, I say summary of criticisms of West. Um, though attractive to young Catholics who are understandably preoccupied with the subject sex due to their age and the culture in which we live, claims such as those analyzed above violate the Christian tradition's affirmation of, but simultaneous relativization of, marriage and sex in the Christian life understood from an eschatological perspective. So the complaint is that West has made marriage and sex too central in the Christian life, and that West romanticizes marital sex, making it bear a weight of meaning and experiential fulfillment that it cannot carry, which relates to the comment uh, on the other page that we looked at. Um, and I think if we bear that in mind as a at least potential critique, how we use these resources, we can make sure we've got something of balance there. Yes, a positive presentation, but that can go with realism as well. Realism doesn't have to be cynicism. There can be positivity and realism too. Okay, some of the more tough details within this, words like open, like artificial, we are going to unpack in the weeks ahead. Um, what have we done today and the last lecture? We have summarized what John Paul II's Theology of the Body says in general. We've noted in particular how it gives a whole new packaging to the question of the meaning of sex, the meaning of the body, marriage uh, and contraception. Um, all of which means when we go through these issues, even when I'm not mentioning his name, and a lot of the weeks ahead I, I won't mention his name, he's changed this whole background. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Thank you.
name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.